Welcome to Cases from the Community, a special audio program developed from a satellite CME symposium held at the 2018 GU Cancer Symposium. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. The core of this program are Zoom video calls I conducted with five community-based general medical oncologists in advance of the live meeting we had in San Francisco. During these chats, these oncologists presented cases from their practices and specific questions for the faculty at the live meeting to discuss. The first three modules will focus on the use of checkpoint inhibitors for bladder, renal, and prostate cancer, and the last two modules will talk about generic issues related to the use of these agents in practice, specifically related to assessment or response and management of toxicities and potential autoimmune contraindications. Our faculty included Drs. Charles Drake, Peter O'Donnell, Elizabeth Plimick, Thomas Powles, and David Quinn. The first case introducing our bladder cancer module was a 76-year-old woman treated by Dr. Suzanne Cole who had extensive bulky metastatic disease which completely resolved on treatment with atezolizumab. The patient, unfortunately, while in complete remission, died of an acute cerebrovascular event. To begin, Dr. Drake responded to Dr. Cole's question about what we know about patients with extraordinary clinical responses to checkpoint inhibitors like this patient. Complete responses do occur in all cancers treated with anti-PD-1 or PD-L1. The challenge is that they're not that common, and getting good data sets requires the pooling of data. So we actually have pooled some data sets from Hopkins, Memorial, and Dana-Farber in kidney cancer to try to analyze these patients. But what I can tell you is in the preliminary analysis, really nothing surprising or easy falls out, right? So they don't have more immune cells in their tumor. They don't have more pdl one Nothing strange about the mutational burden. There might be something about the microenvironment before you treat them, but we really don't know that yet. So yes, the answer is that people are studying the complete responders, but really no clear answer as to yet. Betsy, any thoughts about this? You know, we're starting to hear more about you know, the microflora and the bowel as maybe having something to do with checkpoint inhibitors. Anything that we've learned about these extraordinary responders and any comments about the stroke this lady had, related, unrelated? Sure. So I think the stroke is unrelated. There's a lot of things that checkpoint inhibitors can do. And whenever we see something unusual, we always wonder if there's a link. But cardiovascular and checkpoint inhibitors is not one that's been drawn distinctly. With complete responders, we're just so happy when we see them. I think they absolutely should be studied. They're alive and doing well, except for cases like this. And so they're willing to be studied. I think it's a question we have to look into. Well, you know, we talk about functional cure, where we get rid of the disease or we limit the disease effect enough that we can die of something else. I guess maybe that's sort of what happened here, although it seemed to happen very quickly. A couple of general questions about bladder cancer. There are five checkpoint inhibitors approved right now in this disease. Dave, any comments about selection of these agents? And we actually asked the audience whether they thought there's any difference between them, you know, in terms of tolerability or efficacy. And most of the audience thinks that there isn't. Dave, is there any way you can distinguish these five drugs? Yeah, we have clinical research, but sort of taking a step back in terms of efficacy, tolerability. I can't pick between them at this stage. 
and we're not likely to have comparative trials soon. I think it's interesting, the audience have gone with Pembro, which I think has the highest level of evidence based on a positive phase three study, Keynote 45. And then the next commonest was a Tezo, where I think that we have very good level two evidence, didn't hit the phase three mark in their trial, probably because of an issue with biomarker selection. But by the time we got that data, most of us had been using the drug for a year and we had a comfort with it. And I had patients where I treated them for a year they were in complete or near complete response and I opted at that time to take them off. And I have had some progress. So I think a positive experience both with Pembro and Atezo. Nevo, Devulumab and Avelumab are active. We don't have the same level of evidence for the last three and they're given every two weeks which means more chair time, more having to come and look at me more often, which is never good for the patients. And we're looking at formulations of some of these drugs that'll give a higher dose at a greater interval, perhaps doubling it up for, I think we're about to get that for Nevo. And that may mean that we might consider the use of Nevo in the urothelial space a little more. Same with Devulamat. Tom, we asked the audience, you know, kind of a simple, basic question. Consider a patient with metastatic urothelial bladder cancer being considered for first-line therapy for metastatic disease, and assume the patient is asymptomatic. From the point of view of risk-benefit, what's the best therapy? The audience goes kind of with the evidence-based or guidelines-based approach would be cisplatin-containing therapy. Clearly, there's going to be a lot more toxicity than anti-PD-1 antibody. We don't have maybe the kind of data we need. What's your take right now? You know, you think about the risks and the benefits, the fact that the patient is asymptomatic. Maybe you can launch them into a prolonged response with a checkpoint inhibitor with minimal toxicity. Yeah, the chance is less than with chemo, but anyhow. So I think it's a good question. I think that we haven't, for individuals who are eligible for cisplatin-based therapy, we don't have any results from trials with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So that's a complete unknown. And therefore, if patients are eligible for cisplatin-based therapy, they should either receive that or take part in a clinical trial. And then there's this big group of patients who are not eligible for cisplatin-based therapy. And I think that's a complicated group of patients because we've got two studies that both show modest response rates with durable responses and really quite mixed survival data. And I think we just got to wait and see how these big randomized frontline trials pan out in this group of patients. But the difficulty that we have is that patients given the option of chemotherapy or immune therapy will want to have frontline immune therapy because the feeling is if you can go into a long-term durable remission, it's much better than the chemotherapy journey. And the chemotherapy journey is not a great one. Median survival is 15 months and most of my patients want more than that. And so I think the patients I see, they come and say, I want to have the immune therapy. And I'm saying, well, if you've got liver metastasis, high burden of disease, rapidly progressive disease, actually we may need to get in control with chemotherapy first. That might be the right intervention. But they still are saying, well, you know, but then my survival is still only a year. I want more than that. I want that long-term durable remission. So we've got actually a very, very difficult time with this group of patients. It's probably the most difficult bladder cancer question we have right now. And I know that you get the question not infrequently. I'm curious how you answer it. Like, what would you do if it were you, doc, or somebody in your family? So I think if you've got rapidly progressive disease, it's aggressive, and you don't think you've got 12 weeks if you don't think you've got that 12-week period, you know, when the patients say, oh, can I go on holiday for a couple of weeks? And you said, no, no, you need the treatment now. You know, those patients should get chemotherapy. 
because the chemotherapy gets in control, and once you're in control, there's a debate about immune therapy. If they've got lymph node disease, they've had the disease for a few months, the CT scan shows minor progression, you know, a couple of lung mets, then yeah, have a go with immune therapy. And there's a one in four or one in five chance of going into a long-term durable mission, which would be a fantastic result. But if you get that wrong, you can lose patients on immune therapy who die quite quickly. And that's a pretty unpleasant situation for everyone. So Peter, same situation in an older patient, we said 85. But again, asymptomatic. The audience now seems very strongly persuaded towards anti-PD-1, pd one antibody. Peter, any thoughts? I agree with the audience here. I mean, this is, I think, a clear case where the risk-benefit is going to be in favor of immune therapy. First of all, the patient's asymptomatic. Their renal function is certainly going to be below 60 in this case, so you're well justified using frontline immune therapy here. And these patients usually tolerate it quite well. And this patient has that chance that Dr. Powell is just talking about of really having a long-term benefit. And Dave, agree with that? Or would you give the patient, say, 85-year-old man cisplatin? Well, I try and work out whether the patient's cisplatin eligible or not. Now, the problem is that 85, even if they've got a normal creatinine, when you calculate them out, often their creatinine clearance is less than 60. So the patient may be cisplatin ineligible, in which case I think that I would go with the immunotherapy over a carboplatin-based regimen. But I would still be trying to give that patient some form of cisplatin chemotherapy if I could, because I think you do still lose the opportunity if they don't get it up front. Another intriguing case of bladder cancer was presented by Dr. Joseph Martins. The patient was a 68-year-old man who was seen postoperatively after prior neoadjuvant chemotherapy and a cystectomy that was performed in spite of the fact that the patient had an involved inguinal node. Dr. Martins saw the patient to consider adjuvant therapy for what in reality was stage 4 NED. The tumor had responded very minimally to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and the patient was initially seen at a tertiary center and offered a trial of adjuvant atezolizumab, but couldn't travel to the center to participate. Dr. Martins wanted the faculty's opinion about the use of pseudoadjuvant immunotherapy in this situation outside the context of a clinical trial, and Dr. Powell's responded. Well, it's really experimental, and it's a long way off piste, and I mean, my feeling is these trials are going to end up being positive, these adjuvant studies. I think it's the right environment to test these drugs. And this patient is clearly a very high-risk patient. And so I think he's sort of predicting the future, and I suspect the clinician will be right in that. But we just don't currently have the data. You know, there are some other maintenance-type trials kicking around where you give chemotherapy, get in control, and then give maintenance evalumab or best supportive care. And we know in lung cancer there's a study called Pacific, which is also similar to that, where you give chemo-rad, and then after that, it's either placebo or maintenance duvalimab. That study was spectacularly positive with a PFS advantage too. So this setting is where these drugs are going to land, and I think these are going to be the most positive trials, but it's just a bit premature at the moment. Yeah, that Pacific trial is just so huge because there's so many patients involved. This is a quarter of lung cancer where now they're going to get really adjuvant, as you say. Checkpoint here was for a year. But the bit there that's kind of I'm interested in really is the question before was around the drugs. And there are more similarities than differences. I suspect we'll never know if they're different or the same. But what you can get with these drugs is really surprising results if you test them in the right setting. 
And I suspect the setting in which you test these drugs is going to be a whole load more important than the drug pembrolizumab versus atezolizumab. Dave, a third of the audience actually would use a checkpoint inhibitor in this situation. I'm curious what you would do, and I really hate to ask this again, but like, what would you want to do if it were you? So presumably you've had a zingodal lymph node dissected. Right. And we have some data that if you have a cystectomy and you have one site of distant disease resected, you can do well without further therapy. So the patient may do well, and it may be reasonable to wait, because if they're being having surveillance and they recur in the lymph nodes, you've got the opportunity. But that said, I might drive the patient to the Metroplex and go <laughs> on the study. The problem with the study he's talking about is that in the observation arm, it's very onerous for the patients. They make them show up every three weeks for the first 12 weeks. So he's got to drive from Tyler to Dallas to do that even though he may not be getting the active drug. And then after that, it's kind of every second time. There's a newer study coming through the cooperative group that is less onerous for the people who are on the control arm. It's interesting you mentioned the Pacific trial. Also, we saw in ESMO a positive adjuvant melanoma trial with PD-1 alone. So, you know, maybe we will be seeing these come into the adjuvant setting. We next went on to discuss checkpoint inhibitors in renal cell cancer, and the next case was presented by Dr. Eric Rupart. The patient was a 59-year-old man with metastatic clear cell cancer of the kidney who received first-line treatment with bezoponib, but later had progressive disease, including brain metastases, which were treated with radiation therapy. Dr. Rupart's question to the faculty related to the choice of second-line systemic treatment in this situation specifically the question of using a checkpoint inhibitor or another TKI. Dr. Rupart's plan was to use immunotherapy and questioned whether he should use single-agent nivolumab or add ipilimumab. He also had a few choice words about his experience with TKIs for renal cell cancer, which he called, quote, terrible for patients, particularly in terms of inducing fatigue and malaise, and Dr. Quinn responded. You know, I don't know what he's talking about. My patients love being on these drugs. Um, so I think, you know, the first realization that these drugs have chronic, fairly debilitating side effects came in about 2005 when we developed the quality of life instrument called the FIXI for renal cell patients. And the FIXI assessment never went up once you started therapy. So you never got back to baseline. And for me, one of the most important things about the Checkmate 025 study, which was the Nevo versus Everlimus and the second line was that that tool was used and with nivolumab, you got back to baseline at six weeks and you kept going up. So it kept improving and certainly with Everlimus, it went down and it kind of stayed down, improved a little bit. So yeah, there are issues with these drugs and I think we can get people through them the effects and side effects of one drug will vary from one patient to another. So I think that they're not easy to use. I use them more often than most community oncologists, so I'm kind of used to it. I think that they do work, and I think they have a place, but this particular case is a real problem because the patient's presented with bad disease. He's got brain mets, multiple bone mets, is symptomatic with pain, and still has a large renal primary in place, which should not be the subject of discussion of cytoreductive nephrectomy. So he probably scores five out of five on Mozart's scale and seven out of seven on the Heng scale for being poor risk. And he's progressed on the first scan on pazopinib, a good drug. 
So bottom line, he wants to know what you would recommend specifically that he treat this patient with. So I would go with nivolumab, single agent. I would not add epi. The patient's already sick, and I don't really think we have a great evidence base in the second line. We have some phase two data. We have better evidence in the first line for combining it. So I'd go with nivolumab. I might consider cabozantinib because of the bone metastases. I want to get Tom's perspective on this. And Tom, you'll note that the audience, 60% agreed with Dr. Rupart about his statement about TKIs. We actually asked a couple related questions. We presented two scenarios to the audience. The first in which the patient gets pozopidem first line, has a good response and tolerates it well. I was kind of curious if we could get people interested in using a TKI, and it looks like they're not. So they're still going with a checkpoint inhibitor. And then we presented a case of a patient who did not respond and tolerated poorly, and the audience is still going with a checkpoint inhibitor. Tom, any thoughts about this? And would you consider some type of combination that Dr. Rupart brought up, Ipinevo? So I wouldn't be doing combinations. I'd be doing nivolumab as well, and I think it's entirely reasonable to switch everyone to nivolumab. If you look at global drug sales for what it's worth, cabozatinib is very, very competitive in this space. If you go into the community, cabozatinib is being used as frequently as nivolumab in this population. The survival data for cabozatinib is similar to that of nivolumab. The response rate is higher. It has a PFS as well. So, you know, I think that there is a genuine choice in this setting. Although immune checkpoint inhibitors look better on paper, and I think the quality of life issue is very important, we still have choice, and the data suggests that's not the case. But the really key question for me is what David said, is that trying something new and that quality of life issue is important for these patients. Because, and I've talked about this for a long time, the targeted therapies really at this point is following this law of diminishing returns where the second one works less well than the first one and the third one even less well. So the change is important emotionally. The change is important also from a quality of life perspective. And of course, there is this theoretical long-term durable remission, which isn't as high as you might expect in Checkmate 25. So I want to ask Peter for his comments on this. And also, Peter, we asked the audience about the issue of brain mets. This patient has brain mets. So we said... How effective are anti-PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies in people with brain mets? And most people think they're less effective than systemic mets. There's actually a quarter of the audience think they are as effective. Any comments about the second-line decision Dr. Rupart is facing and about this issue of brain mets, Peter? Yes, I personally would push this patient towards trying to get the Ipinevo combination if the insurance could cover it here. I think this is a 59-year-old patient. You've probably got one chance to salvage this patient and try to get the disease under control. That's how I see it. I mean, this patient's young. They haven't responded at all to the TKI. There was a very short period of being exposed to that drug. So that's how I would look at it. If the patient was in agreement with trying to be most aggressive and if it could be insurance covered there, I would push the patient toward the combination. Fascinating. So Dave, what's your clinical experience? What's the data show about checkpoint inhibitors and brain mets? So most of our data for brain mets comes from melanoma, where you can get a response. And if they respond extracranially, they often do within the brain. Now, that said, we often do stereotactic radiation. And that's because of the risk of bleeding from melanoma mets, we kind of worry about that, especially when they're larger. So have you seen objective responses to brain mets from renal cell, Dave? Actually, I have, but that's because the patient declined to have radiation to the brain. And so I'm less comfortable 
watching a patient with urothelial or renal cancer who's got brain met. Yeah, I don't think we're talking about watching, just whether you see responses or you can see responses. Oh, I, I, I think you've seen them, Betsy? I've seen a response, yeah, and a patient who was previously radiated who occurred in the brain, and we had them on Nevo, and they responded. So one more issue, and Betsy, maybe you could handle this one, kind of like what we asked about bladder cancer. I'm kind of trying to think beyond regulatory issues, think beyond, you know, we're not even getting into issues of value and cost, just the pure clinical science of risks and benefits. When you look at first-line therapy, now we've seen data with anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1, epi-neva that we just talked about. So we asked, you know, the audience, what do you think in your gut is the best first-line therapy in terms of risk-benefit ratio in a younger patient? And the audience says epi-neva, less but a significant number say TKIs, about a third of them. And then we asked the same question for an 85-year-old. Interestingly, still 15% of people are saying ipinevo, but now you see more PD-1, PD-1 alone, or TKI. Betsy, when you kind of really globally think about risks and benefits and put aside everything else, what do you think is or will be the optimal first-line therapy, in your mind, for a younger and older patient? So I think it's changing all the time. It's really different, and I think the ratio might be the same, but Ipi and Nevo, it's high risk, high potential high reward. There's a small chance of something really bad happening, and there's a small chance of durable long-term remission with few side effects. And so for a patient who's willing to sort of make that deal, it makes sense. I think most 60-year-olds probably would. I'm not sure 85-year-old necessarily would. With the TKIs, although the toxicity when we look at the data is significant and Dr. Rupard's comments are well taken, we can modulate it pretty well when we have experience with it. We can switch from, for instance, mazopinib to axitinib. We can modulate the dose. And for someone who's exquisitely VEGF sensitive, that can be in some ways the easiest. Rarely do really bad things happen, often do chronic, annoying, dragging things happen. So it's really just a different calculus. It's really fascinating to see the melanoma people, you know, struggle with the issue of anti-CTLA-4, you know, and PD-1. The data looks good, but when you really start talking to them about taking care of patients, are you going to consider PD-1, et cetera? I mean, they've been thinking about this for a few years now, toxicity. The next module focused on the use of checkpoint inhibitors in prostate cancer, where clearly, for most patients, little activity has been observed. But the recent approval of these agents in MSI high disease, regardless of tumor type, is the first step in this direction. And Dr. Justin Favreau presented a 59-year-old man from his practice who had MSI high somatic disease, but unfortunately, the patient who received the checkpoint inhibitor as very late-line therapy did not respond. Dr. O'Donnell discussed Dr. Favreau's main question, which is, what is the optimal time to introduce checkpoint inhibitors in patients with MSI high disease? I still would use it in a much refractory setting like this. We just have so much more data with all the other approved therapies in this setting. The other thing you'd want to know about a patient like this, I mean, it's great that we're looking at the MSI high signal here, but what about, you know, other alterations, right? Would might make this patient eligible for a laparib? That's really what you would also want to know from a genomic standpoint. We asked the audience, well, first of all, whether or not they've used an anti-PD-1 antibody in a patient with prostate cancer with MSI high disease. And actually, 9% of the audience has already done it, but the vast majority would if they had a patient they knew was MSI high. And then this is kind of interesting when I was talking to these five docs about next-generation sequencing multiplex assay. A lot of them brought up the issue of not being able to do it because of reimbursement, that they wanted to do it. 
So we asked the audience, do you generally perform multiplex testing in patients who run out of option with prostate cancer? And about half the audience is doing it. And another almost third of the audience would do it if they could get it reimbursed. Peter, do you think it's rational to use? You mentioned the idea of looking for genomic alterations. Do you think this is a rational use of resources to do this type of testing? Definitely. This patient's 59, right? There's a decent chance that he has an inherited you know, risk factor here. So one other reason I think maybe that this could be a consideration, we were here for the SIDSI meeting, and Chuck, I saw my favorite presentation of the past year. This was a presentation looking for the CD274 gene PDF1 amplification that you see in Hodgkin, and they looked at it in using the Foundation One database, and they found it in more than 100 cancers. Most people haven't heard of it, but I thought it was super cool. I'm curious, Chuck, what your thoughts are about what was seen. They had nine patients who had this who didn't have Hodgkin's, six responded, and there was one of a patient with glioblastoma who had an objective response. So, Chuck, you know, MSI is very infrequent. This thing is, you know, 0.2%. I think they had three prostate cancer patients in this thing. Are we starting to enter an era where everybody is going to be, we're going to be looking for these very, very unusual alterations? So, Neil, when a patient has an amplification of the PDL1 gene, the mechanism of action of this drug is completely different. What it is, it's a direct anti tumor effect. And you know this because in Hodgkin lymphoma, patients who respond to this respond incredibly quickly. It's not time enough to ramp up the immune system. So, this is probably what can happen in other diseases. As you mentioned, a small cell lung cancer. That's fascinating. So, yeah. it's a different mechanism, it's not Correct. the immune system? And yes. what's going on? Yeah, it's basically the tumor cells themselves express a lot of PDL1, and it's more like a direct anti tumor effect. Huh, fascinating. Are you looking for this? What did you think of this data set? Yeah, it was stunning, actually. I think that everyone's going to start looking now. I mean, especially diseases like, you know, it was sort of showed them all, but it's really fairly high in small cell lung cancer, some things that are not so uncommon, right? Fascinating. We'll see how this plays out over the next few years. Well, Dave, you know, hopefully in a few years there'll be more to talk about in terms of immunotherapy. So just as a comment, the one patient I've seen with an amplification had small cell prostate cancer. Wow. The patient respond? Yes, they, we didn't give them a pdl one but we gave them another immunotherapy and they responded. What was the other immunotherapy? I can't remember. It was, <laughs> it, was, it was actually quite a while ago and we never knew what the amplification meant. It was when we first started doing testing and then he moved away from us and died of something else. But it was a fairly dramatic response. Why don't we just maybe summarize in terms of where you see things going in terms of particularly checkpoint inhibitors in prostate cancer, Dave? So I think checkpoint inhibitors may be active in somewhere between 15 and 20% of patients. Right now, we don't know who they are. And if you look at some of the other cancers, like if we look in urothelial cancer, I think we've got activity of somewhere between 15 to 30%. And so it may not be that different, but we have nothing else in urothelial cancer that's about to change rapidly. And therefore, looking at that response makes a big difference. In prostate cancer, if you respond to these things, you get a durable response. So if we can select them right, I think we may actually have a therapy that's useful. We're just not there yet. In the remainder of this symposium, we discuss issues that relate in general to the use of checkpoint inhibitors. And the first was the management of patients with early progression on imaging. Dr. Phil Glenn presented an 85-year-old man with renal cell cancer who received two TKIs and then third-line nivolumab. The patient felt much better on checkpoint therapy, although some of that may relate to stopping TKI therapy, which was causing some toxicity. 
In any event, when initial imaging, clear-cut objective disease progression was observed in spite of the fact that the patient was feeling well, and Dr. Glenn wanted the faculty's input on how to manage patients in this situation. Dr. O'Donnell began the discussion. I've learned in these patients that, you know, you don't want to pull the immune therapy drug off too soon. Even if you've got a little bit of progression on scan and that patient looks good and feels good, I generally will try to keep the patient on the immune therapy drug, you know, get another scan, maybe you move that next scan up a little sooner than you would normally. But if that patient's doing well, why would you want to change gears there? And that certainly is the mantra that we've been hearing from the melanoma people from the beginning about this kind of thing. But I was just more wondering, Betsy, specifically, what happens when you stop a drug like a TKI? It's causing a lot of problems, a lot of fatigue. Do you see the patients then getting better? And is it sometimes difficult to separate out whether that's what's going on or the drug is helping them? Yeah, I mean, this looks like a patient who did not have a lot of symptoms from their disease, just judging by the fact that they were on these TKIs for three years. So they got a lot of benefit out of them. It could be rebound. I would hope that Dr. Glynn gave the patient holidays over that three-year period, and so then it might be better known how they feel off of it, because that's a long time to be on it. But I absolutely agree with Peter. I think if someone's feeling well, you know, the scans are in some ways less important to your ultimate endpoint, which is keeping them feeling well. And certainly we've seen especially in renal cell, regression after initial progression. So we want to give them that chance. Tom, any estimate of how often you see a patient have objective progression after starting and then have an objective response? So I think there's pseudoprogression in melanoma, and I think that's well documented. I think there's pseudoprogression in kidney cancer and some very unpredictable responses in kidney cancer. We've seen very unusual stories in kidney cancer where you stop the drug and then six months later the cancer disappears. I've not seen it in bladder cancer. I've not seen it in lung cancer. We've treated a lot of patients. The more common thing in lung cancer by some distance and the more common thing in bladder cancer by some distance is is rapid progression of disease. And my nervousness around frontline bladder cancer, which has a license, both a tezolizumab and pembrolizumab, is if you treat past progression with new liver metastasis, what you're going to find is you're going to miss the boat to get the chemotherapy in. And that chemotherapy will probably buy six months of life for patients. So I actually think I'm very nervous about the broadcasting of pseudoprogression and keep going, but saying I usually see pseudoprogression, I've never seen it in the two or 300 bladder cancer patients we've treated. That's really interesting. I didn't really think about it because I was struck when I heard these cases. So you think maybe this is more common specifically in renal cell, Tom? Yeah, the biology of kidney cancer and melanoma is somewhat different from the other tumor types that we're treating. really interesting. We asked the audience a couple of questions. One is, we heard earlier about this patient who had a complete response. I think we brought up this question of, what do you do? And I was curious how long you treat. You see a patient like the one we heard described earlier, they have a complete response. Most of the audience would keep therapy going, assuming they're tolerating it well indefinitely. Betsy, I'm starting to hear people talk about stopping in all kinds of different tumors. I've heard it in lung cancer, patient's stable, they've had a great response stop and you know, maybe retreat or maybe not have to retreat. How do you approach these patients? So for now, I would answer indefinitely, but I think when we come back here next year, we'll have more data. Fortunately, many of the pembrolizumab studies, I think one of the Duralumab studies and certain cohorts within the earlier phase one studies actually built in stopping at one year or two years. And it's really not going to be until we follow those patients out and see how they do that will know the answer to that question. This patient is feeling well. In my experience, I've offered patients to stop if 
they don't want to keep coming to the center. I don't know if any of you have had anyone take them up on it, but if they're feeling great and their cancer is controlled, they're not willing to take the risk without data, and we don't have data for them right now. The last checkpoint inhibitor issue we discussed was immune-related toxicity and also the use of these agents in patients with prior autoimmune conditions. Dr. Favreau presented a 77-year-old man with metastatic renal cell cancer who was responding to a checkpoint inhibitor but developed dermatologic toxicity requiring corticosteroid therapy and eventually discontinuation of treatment. Dr. Favreau was interested in the faculty's experience with this side effect and Dr. Powell started the discussion. So there's a massive spectrum of dermatological toxicity and mild skin rash is incredibly common with these drugs. And the management of that can often be nothing, topical creams. And there's a large group of patients that are managing that silently without making too much complaints about it. Because compared to the toxicity associated with VEGF targeted therapy, it's a walk in the park. There is a subgroup of patients, and we've probably treated five or six patients who we've had to stop therapy because of dermatological toxicity. We've actually had one person who spent a month on ITU whose skin essentially fell off, and we went through everything with no, this. no prior dermatologic problems? No prior dermatologic That's actually on the combination of Bevatezo, for what it's, it was in the motion one. 50, which has been presented, but we stopped both drugs, and then after a period, they had a spectacular response, and we now see her, she's now on sunitinib and has got through that, but she spent a month on ITU. So there, we took biopsies, and it was a proper you know, autoimmune-related dermatological toxicity. So there is a spectrum of toxicity, and Betsy made the point really early on, which sometimes these grade three or four big categories of toxicity, you know, diarrhea, pneumonitis, they don't catch these rarer patients that are really running into problems with these drugs. And it makes us all extremely nervous. And I always say, if it's something unusual and you're not sure, it's probably the drugs. And always err on the side of caution. In our, stop the drugs doesn't make any difference because of the long half-life. You have to intervene with steroids under those circumstances. So, you know, it's my current opinion that actually the management of these patients is as important as picking Evalimab versus duvalimab or you know, the management is more important than drug choice because the right management means you can keep going with the drugs whereas you get these things wrong, you start too late, the patient comes off therapy. And you think about the incredible paradigm shift that's occurring in oncology offices involving everybody, the nurses, the office staff, shifting from a chemotherapy toxicity paradigm now. You know, some of these docs are saying, you know, I'm treating two or three people a day with checkpoint inhibitors. Peter, quick question from the audience, which is, is there a correlation between immune toxicity and benefit from immunotherapy? Well, the data in certain diseases is more advanced, right? But I think that there's a signal personally, even in the GU cancers, especially for patients who seem to have this complete response, right? I've had many patients where they've had to come off therapy because of some severe immune-related adverse event and yet have this prolonged benefit from the therapy off of drug. So let's take the pulse of the audience. First, is there a difference in terms of toxicity between anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1, you know, we heard when we first started hearing about these agents, we know they have a different mechanism of action with some speculation. Maybe anti-PD-L1 would have less toxicity, for example, in the lung. The audience is kind of split 50-50. Did that actually play out in practice? Well, you know, as the larger data sets emerge, I think that it's actually less clear that there's any difference. So I really think that in the large data sets, the, the really the data overlap, actually. We talked a little bit about the combination of anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1. We asked the audience how much more toxicity. They say a lot more. 
Dave, do you agree with that? And what we've heard is same types of toxicity, just more of it. So I'm not sure whether there's a lot more. It depends what dose and what schedule you're on. The Nevo 3 Ipi 1 is not too bad compared to 10 milligrams of Ipi that we've used up until fairly recently in melanoma. And I think that it is the same toxicities, but you do see a different spectrum with Ipi at higher doses. So the severe colitis, I think, is a feature of CTLA-4. You still do see it in some patients on PD-1 and pd one So, yeah, to some extent, but I think giving the higher doses of CTLA-4 inhibitors is much more terrifying than PD-1 or pd one So, Tom, we're going to run through a couple more questions to the audience. Would you use an anti-PD-1, pd one antibody in patients with metastatic urothelial bladder cancer, status post two lines of chemotherapy, so not much in the way of options, but the patient has history of Crohn's disease, well-controlled. There's a consensus in the audience, just kidding, they're completely split, <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. Half the audience would, half wouldn't. Tom, would you? So the onenfliximab, which is a treatment to reverse the effects of PD, PDL1. <laughs> so the answer for me is no, a strong no. Um, okay, so next one. How about a patient with multiple sclerosis, Tom, but with minimal neurologic defect, who's not receiving active therapy. Audience, again, split 50-50. Really risky. We actually had a case of demyelinating disease with these drugs, and the patient died at paraplegic. So this would be really risky for me, and I wouldn't include this patient. Although, you know, when you look at situations where we often face with, you know, life expectancy is six months, hospice, such a difficult thing. But, of course, it's horrible to have to induce something like that. Okay, Tom, kidney transplant, yes or no? The audience says no. It depends on what immune suppression they're on. So what immune suppression would get you okay with doing I think if you're running actively on immune suppression, I wouldn't be giving immune checkpoint inhibition. Active immune suppression. I actually had a patient, I can't remember who presented this to me, who had rejection of a heart transplant. Right. What about heart transplant, Tom? Would you give it to a patient? Again, you're facing a dismal prognosis. Yes or no, the audience says no. So I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> so I'm not the, these make me nervous. So the kidney transplant actually is a different setting because if they reject their kidney, they can go on to dialysis. We have a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine where we did just that. I was going to say, Hopkins, didn't you guys look into that? Yeah, we did. Renal we, transplant, we, and it was okay. But renal transplantation, you can do it, Chuck. You can do it. But it was a complex consent process. Because real dialysis is not a great life either. Correct. The patient so, had to agree that they had a good chance of going on dialysis before we did this. Correct. Just yeah. FYI, when we were here at the ASCO GI meeting, there was a paper on checkpoint inhibitors, and I think it was six patients with liver transplant. And one rejected it, but the other got through it. Final question, the unknowable. I mean, I'm just kind of curious what you think, Chuck. How often when you see immune-related adverse events, do you think it's reactivation of a cult autoimmune disease. You know, we did a little bit of work on this, actually. And you've done so, work. I mean, whatever I ask you, you know, we have a series. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. So it's actually interesting. If you go back and look at the pretreatment sera of patients who have autoimmune events, you can actually detect the antibodies respond for those autoimmune events in a significant fraction of patients, actually. So patients with myasthenia, right, you can see anti-acetylcholine antibodies. Patients with MS, you can see antineuronal antibodies, antithyroid antibodies. So I think, actually, if we were really successfully detecting these things, it probably is a large degree reactivation, I suspect. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty, our community-based medical oncologists, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for this special audio spin-off CME program from a satellite meeting held at the GU Cancer Symposium in San Francisco.